and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, as uh, they say where I grew up, howdy, partner. It is good to see you guys here. Man, this is my church family. I love this. What a great worship time we had this morning. Uh, I mean, that's when I'm just ready for Jesus to come back, right? And that kind of song right there, amen? Hey, well, look around you. Does this room look a lot different? They painted all of the walls today, or today, this last weekend. And, uh, and new carpet's going to be coming in because of your giving, what you've done. Thank you guys for all of your hard work. Let's thank God for all the hard work this week. Yeah. Well, we're glad you guys chose Bent Tree to be a part of. Let me just give uh, something in Bent Tree's life that you'll not want to miss. And that I think it's at 6 p.m. Um, and that is at 6 p.m. Friday night. A very, very special service. My favorite service of the year. Uh, it is interactive. It has uh, got the communion piece in there as well. So I hope that you come for that. It's the Good Friday service. There's just one service, so you're going to need to get here early. Now listen, it's a different kind of service. So when you come in, stay quiet. Some people wear all black on that service. Just a, it's a time of mourning, remembering Jesus' death for us. Uh, and we'll have a time of singing, and it's a reflective service for that. So then Sunday, what a celebration. Amen. So come Friday night, uh, and it'll be a great time. And then like uh, they were saying, that, that Sunday service is a chance for you to bring your friends. Well, if you're new to Bentry, I'd like to meet you as well. I, I, I'll be standing outside, out front, uh, the entrance after the service. Come by, just say hello. I'd love to shake your hand and answer any quick questions about Bentry that I can. But you don't have to just meet me. I mean, take a little bit of a risk today if you're new. Introduce yourself to folks around you. Go get a donut, grab some coffee, and, and make yourself available. And go say, hey, my name is Paul. Unless your name's not Paul, then use your name. You'll find this is a friendly church. You really will. But I know it's hard to break the ice at first. Bent Treeers love to meet new people. Ask them about Bent Tree as well. By the way, uh, we have this deal called Starting Point coming up April 24th. Go to that thing. It will answer a lot of questions about Bent Tree if you're new. Show you how to get plugged in, kind of how to break the ice, how to make this your family. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that makes Bent Tree a little bit different than most modern churches is that we make this the centerpiece of Sunday's worship, uh, about turning our attention to God's Word. What does God say to us, right? Giving our time and serious effort, concentration, focus. What I mean is that we study Scripture here. We tend to go verse by verse through books of the Bible. For those that have been here a little while, we've worked our way through books like Revelation. The opening half of Genesis, uh, we'll come back to that someday. <laughs> the book of Habakkuk we've gone through. The book of Jonah, the book of James, you'll remember we did a few years ago. Those are all books inside this book, the Bible. We work our way through them just verse by verse, even the hard verses, even the uncomfortable verses. And, and right now we are in the New Testament book of John, the fourth gospel in the account of the Bible that describes Jesus's coming to earth, this God-man and how he lived and how he died, how he rose on the morning of the third day. We study what it means in our lives. And I mentioned that way of preaching, not to brag at all. There are some uh, like us even in this town that do the same thing, other churches that do that. But most churches nowadays preach a topic-based sermon. Now that's not necessarily a bad thing either, but sometimes uh, we, because sometimes we do that too, like we take a topic of say prayer or baptism or faith or like our base 10 giving or, or the topic of why people suffer and then we preach a sermon on that area and, and see what the Bible says regarding those topics, right? Now, but what we don't do is try to preach a lightweight message that is a topic that tries to kind of puff you up. You know what I mean? We don't try to simply make you feel good so that you'll come back and bring friends and give more money. 
Although that wouldn't be bad if you had to do that. Now we joke and say, Sunday is not a TED Talk. If you know what that means. You know what a TED Talk is? It's not a TED Talk. We tend to use Scripture and we use a lot of it. We go fast and Scripture, let's be honest, this thing can hurt your feelings. It hurts my feelings regularly because it tends to point out what's wrong with us and in, in, in how we believe it or not. And, and it points us in the right direction of what we should believe. And let's just be honest too, that can be uncomfortable if we're not living according to the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 says this, tells us, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What else can do that? Nothing. Scripture, as we study it, can be painful to see where we fall short of what God calls us to be. But praise God for it. Scripture is like a mirror in a sense that if you look in that mirror, it won't lie to you. It will point out your flaws. It'll point out all the incompleteness of your, your life. And, and this is a core belief at Bentry. Biblical truth in our preaching has the power to change lives. Can I get an amen on that? And I'm not saying because I'm good at it. It's at the core of what we believe here because we see that in Scripture and we've seen it work over and over in our very own lives. I look out and I know many of you and I've seen it work in your lives as you've grown in your faith through the work of the Holy Spirit as he applies these words to your heart. In other words, the Spirit of God uses this time, this time of preaching, uses this, this, this teaching, this preaching of the Bible to change us, to shape us, to give us a new way to think, a new way to feel. And, and it produces fruit in the lives of the believer. It produces change. Well, let's be turning to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, today as we get ready to begin. Uh, would you take a moment with me and let's just go to God in prayer, seek Him. Mm, Heavenly Father, we worship you. We just continue our time of worship. You have created us to worship you, so we do. Lord, our, our prayer is that you would make your name great in our midst. Show us who you are. Reveal yourself. And in turn, help us to understand who you are and how we need to live in you. God, we don't know what we don't know. Teach us today in your word. God, what we think we know, but we've got wrong, would you, would you show us that? Would you show us where we're off and change that? And most of all, God, we invite you, your spirit, into this place, that your spirit would be in us and among us as we study your word. It is in the great name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, can you believe that we have made it to chapter 5? of the Gospel of John. I feel like I've climbed a mountain and yet there's so much more to do. This is the 46th week in the series. That means that we have spent just over 11 weeks per chapter as we work our way through the book. Uh, now I say that because when we started John, I, I did tons of study before. I studied for a year before, read tons of books on the commentaries, and I thought most churches now go through John in a series in about 12 weeks. And, and not to knock them at all, but, but I thought, what do I cut? What do I cut? What do I leave out to do it that fast? Because John is just simply just so packed full of this life-changing message, and it's all from Jesus. So I decided what I wanted for us was, frankly, I felt like God wanted us to take our time and go through it, not to rush it, and get as much out of this book as possible. Take as long as it takes. So I, I quit trying to feel bad that, that I was going slow and simply embraced it. Is that cool with you guys, that, that your pastor's slow and someone says amen? Now, do we take breaks and do other things? Yeah, we took a break for Christmas, and we do little series here and there. Uh, 
that here we stand, the beginning of John chapter 5. Now I say all that because John chapter 5 starts a new section, completely new section of the gospel of John. You'll see that today. We've seen some of Jesus' teaching before this little point in a little short little parts, but it's simply uh, been mainly about John the apostle telling us what's happening with Jesus and Jesus sharing a little bit. But now, beginning in chapter 5, going through chapter 8, we're going to see some different developments and how Jesus teaches and then what he teaches. In chapter 5 to John, something shifts compared to what we've seen so far. For one, we're going to hear Jesus teach a ton more than he, than he has so far in this book. Long sections you'll see later on in this chapter too. But two, we're going to see this conflict arise between Jesus and these religious rulers of the Jews. This is important for today to understand it. Because right away, even if you didn't know the end of the story of Jesus' death and crucifixion, you, you could literally guess what's coming because it's hinted at so many times in the first four chapters. Now, starting in chapter 5, though, we see this conflict move from a spark in those first four chapters, to now a flame, and then by the end of the chapter, a bonfire. Conflict. And what's so surprising is the conflict is not so much with really with what we would think it would be. The conflict that we see here between Jesus and these religious leaders, it's a battle, royale. And, and the battle is not just with calling people to holiness and away from sin. He certainly will do that in this section. But the real conflict really isn't there uh, it, as much as that is with the church leaders themselves. If you didn't know the Bible, you might think that Jesus' main conflict is really with sinful people. Like drunks, prostitutes, even thieves or Romans who occupied Israel. But no, Jesus really actually doesn't have much of a problem there. Jesus' biggest conflict is with the leaders of the Jewish people. The reason this is so important to understand is the focus in this conflict is that it will apply to us in how we live our daily lives. Or should I say, in how we should live, right? Because as we see Jesus persevere through this conflict and as he works for the mission to which God the Father has called him, we can know how to persevere as well. Isn't that, isn't that what we want to know? Like how do we get through this life? And as one more warning, there's some good stuff here. So pay attention, pay attention. And we're going to have to go, go slow. How slow? How slow do we go? Well, if you're able, would you stand with me in reverence for the Word of God being read aloud today? Here it is. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. You go, Paul, I thought you were going to read our Scripture. I did. I did. Let's dive in. Remember when we began after Jesus calls his disciples and is baptized. Do you remember that? Jesus starts out in Cana of Galilee in the northern part of the country. He turns water into wine at the wedding feast. That was Jesus' first miracle. Then Jesus goes in depth to, uh, John goes in depth to describe that. But then he goes down to Jerusalem he cleans out the temple area, the money changers, all the animals. He, he starts doing signs and wonders there, miracles, and the crowds begin to follow him in mass. Kind of sparks a little conflict there. He starts baptizing people. And as Jesus begins to teach, his disciples are baptizing. Jesus, his followers, and the Jewish leaders begin to get upset. They want to know who this guy is and who he thinks he is, but, but but then Jesus all of a sudden heads north to Galilee with a little layover in Samaria. You remember that? He has that divine appointment with the woman at the well. But then we saw the miracle God heals the royal official's son in Galilee back in the north. When it says after this, at the first of this verse, in our passage, you want to underline that. It's very important. In our passage, it means sometime after that event. 
It's not like the next day. We actually don't know how long before Jesus heads back to Jerusalem for a Jewish festival. That means he goes down, back south, to the Jewish, one of these Jewish feasts. We're not told which Jewish feast it is. It's not important as far as we can tell, because John would have told us it's important if he wanted us to know. The point is, he goes back to Jerusalem. Now, we pointed this out before, but we'll point it out again, reminding ourselves we can think of Jesus going down to Jerusalem as him going and poking the bear, right? He's poking the bear, these religious leaders. As long as Jesus is in the north in Galilee, the bear, I mean the Jewish leaders, might get upset, but there's really not a lot they can do about it. They don't have a lot of pull with these people. They might hear stories of Jesus preaching and healing in the north, but as long as he's out of sight, you could say he is out of mind for these religious dudes, at least at this point. Later on, they're going to be following him in the north as well. But now, he's back. (laughs) And Jesus is about to stir up a hornet's nest with these dudes. Any fans of the movie Braveheart? By the way, that's men. And do you remember seeing the two armies? This is a great scene. They're about to have this huge battle, but there's some questions. If the Scottish lords will even fight the, uh, their, uh, the armies of the English. Do you remember that? You remember that? And William Wallace gives this great speech to the Scottish army. Right, Get ready to fight the English. Now, what a scene that is. Is that a good scene or what? But then right after that speech, Wallace His closest friends, he rides up to him, and they say, good speech. What do we do now? And William Wallace says, stay here and just be yourselves. I love that. And they say, well, what are you going to do? Wallace says, going to go pick a fight. Going to go pick a fight. I love that part. Now, ladies, you can tune back in. I'm done with that. I know I may have lost some of you here, but this is what is happening here. Jesus is about to pick a fight. Not because he wants to fight, but that the enemy here is standing in the way of his goal. His purpose in coming to earth. And what is his purpose? Jesus tells us that he has come to seek and save the lost. In other words, his people that are lost, the ones given to him. He says, I'm coming to rescue them. Those that we find out that God the Father has given him, they are lost, dead in their sin. And Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. That's what it says in Luke 19.10. Now, Jesus knows his purpose. Jesus knows why he came. I know I sound like a success coach when I say this stuff here, but hear me out. There's very little accomplished in someone's life without a firm purpose. There's very little accomplished in this life without someone understanding a firm purpose in their life. Olympic athletes, they train with what? A purpose. What is it? To win the gold medal. Soldiers train to defeat the enemy. Doctors trained, nurses trained to treat the sick. Firefighters trained to face disasters and rescue people. Why? Well, they have a purpose. And they know it. They have a firm determination. You with me? Here's what we know about Jesus. Write this down. Jesus Christ came to earth to live every moment of his life with a firm determination to pursue the will of God the Father. Jesus Christ came to earth to live every moment, I mean every single moment of his life, with a firm determination to pursue the will of God the Father. Now here's the problem. We as Christians often face this. Although we are saved, called to life in Jesus... Write this down. Most Christians seem to live more by want and whim than by a firm determination to follow Jesus. Don't worry, I'll give you plenty of time to write that down. I want you to know this. Most Christians seem to live more by want and whim than by a firm determination to follow Jesus. 
kind of like, what do I want today? What do I feel like? What would make me happy? How many times have I heard a great message on a Sunday morning? Some preacher intended to take action, then I let it just kind of fall away. Have you done that? What happens to that? What happens to the message? Life just simply gets in the way for me. I, I simply put it off. Not forever. I just think, just not now, but then I, I never seem to get to the point of actually taking the action, doing something about that determination I heard. Now, maybe it's serving at a church. Or maybe spending time reading my Bible and in prayer. I mean, like time. Like an hour each morning. Or attending a D3 group regularly. Or doing biblical studies class. Or helping a student D3 group lead that. We go, yeah, those are, those are all good ideas, Paul. But I just don't, just not now. I want to do it. Or how about this, when we get all fired up, ready to witness for Jesus, but then when we see the first real sign of resistance uh, of someone not wanting to hear it, we put the brakes on. At least we imagine the resistance. We build up the resistance in our mind before we ever really even face it. At least I do. So often I've been like a soldier ready to go into battle, and I take the safety off my gun, and I'm ready to attack, but then I get so scared. What could happen? And instead of going into the battle and fighting, I run before a shot is even fired. Have you done that? But not Jesus. He has this firm determination of what could even, we could even say a fierce determination that he's going to not be deterred from carrying out this mission. Now, why can't we live like that? Well, some do. And they have a great impact on the kingdom of God. But for many of us, I think there are two big reasons we don't live with a fierce determination and a purpose to do the will of God the Father like Jesus did. First, it's what we see in verse 1 of chapter 5. It's why we're starting right here today. Number one, we don't take action because we know that there will be some serious opposition to us living for Jesus. We know it's going to be a dogfight. We know it's going to be hard. We don't take action because we know that there will be some serious opposition to us living for Jesus. We don't want to go poke the bear. Why? Because there's a bear. You generally don't poke the bear. I want people to like me. I'm just being honest. I want you to like me. I don't want people to hate me. I'm an easygoing guy. I think... Can't we just all get along? Can't we just all be friends? That sounds good on the surface until you realize what it's leaving out, the purpose for which God has called us to himself. In Matthew 28, Jesus gives us the great commission to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe everything that he had commanded us, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In short, our lives are to be the focus on the mission, pointing people to Jesus. Everything else is secondary. Now, it sounds funny, and it feels good to say, let's not have any conflict, but, but that my friends is the enemy speaking. When I say, I don't want conflict, I just want, I just want us to all get along, you know what I mean? Let's just all be happy and kind. Of course, our spiritual enemy, Satan, wants us to think, let's not rock the boat. Life is too short. Don't rock the boat. Don't rock the boat, baby. Right? What, 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 when that happens, we get these strange thoughts going on. At least I do when people misquote St. Francis of Assisi. I, I've said this before. I'll say it again. They, they quote him falsely, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Listen, that's a false statement of St. Francis. He never said that. It's made up a quote from the enemy, quite frankly. Yes, we should witness with our lives, for sure, but we have to use our words of truth that we find in Scripture. Today, people refer to this as lifestyle evangelism. 
problem is that the gospel consists of propositions that can only be communicated in words about our condition before a holy, righteous God and what God has provided to reconcile us, a sinful people, back to himself, namely Jesus. Remember when the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17, listen to this, that faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing comes by the word of Christ. We must speak the word of Christ. In other words, we have to use words. But here's the thing. We often say, and it's true, the gospel message, it's inherently offensive. It says that all people are screwed up with sin and that we can't save ourselves. That we're beyond hope in ourselves. That we're all headed to hell, every single last one of us, unless we place our faith, our trust in Jesus, and repent of our sins. People just don't want to hear that. And yet, that is the, the unchanging and life-changing message of the gospel. That we can be saved through Christ. So if we know there will be opposition to the message, I think that's the first hurdle that we have to get over, right? Look what Jesus says to us in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. I'm going, Jesus, is this supposed to be comforting? Yes, the world will hate us, but listen, Jesus won't. Come on now. And the last... uh, Last thing we want is for people to hate us on this, but, but get this. Those lost sheep of, of Jesus that we are out to find through our obedience, they won't hate us either. The second obstacle we have to overcome is if we're going to live like Jesus here in verse 5-1. Write this down. Here it is. We don't take action because there might be danger in success in following Jesus. Remember, this is why we don't take action. We don't take action because there might be danger in success in following Jesus. Now, don't miss my meaning just because I I word things funny here. We don't take action because there might be danger in success in following Jesus. This is our excuse. This is our hurdle. We see the dangers of success from from here on as Jesus begins to speak the truth in love. Like what if we're successful? Jesus will walk a path that will lead to his suffering and his crucifixion and his death. And the truth is that scares us a little because Jesus says things like this to us in Matthew 16 verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Now, how many times have I tried to soften that teaching right there of Jesus in my head? Do you do this? Do you do this? Like, I'll kind of rewrite it, make it a little bit uh, more palatable, like I'll say something like, if someone wants to get to heaven, he must take up his cross, which means I'm going to have to be a less sinful person. I'm going to have to go to church a little bit more, and, and I'm going to have to think of others before myself. Now, that sounds more like it to us. That's a little bit more palatable. But that's not what Jesus said, is it? And Jesus Heads into Jerusalem this time. Stuff is about to get real. This is his road to the cross, and he knows it. As the fifth chapter of John begins, the shift we see right off the bat is that there is a new class of people that the Apostle John is going to introduce us to. Let's read this. Chapter one, chapter five, verse one. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, right? Of the Jews. Or underline that, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now the CSB version that we use, the translation says Jewish feast, but the ESV translates that feast of the Jews. Now don't let your modern ears get this wrong. This new class of people the Apostle John is referring to here is the Jews. 
He doesn't mean this as in ethnic Jews because almost everyone we talk about in the book of John is an ethnic Jew. No, what the Apostle John is referring to here and throughout the book is this. The term the Jews does not mean all Jews, but rather the Jewish rulers. It's important you understand this because without this key, you won't understand a lot of the rest of the book. The term the Jews does not mean all Jews, but rather the Jewish rulers or the leaders. Now, it's important to understand this because Jesus is not really fighting with all the Jews. He mainly is in conflict with the Jewish religious leaders. In Jesus' day, the Jewish ruling class consisted of religious sects, if you will, S-E-C-T-S, sects, primarily the Sadducees and the Pharisees with some other groups there. They didn't agree on much of anything theologically, those two groups, but who were both recognized that Jesus, they both recognized that Jesus was a threat and a power because of the popularity he had among the common people. These ruling elites never were more than 5% of the population. The common people were just trying to keep the Torah as best they could, survive day to day. Now this is an interesting part of the Gospel of John because the other three Gospels, we call them the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't seem to use the phrase, the Jews. But the Apostle John does. And remember, he is a Jew himself. Now this has has led some to uh, accusations by Jewish Jewish religious leaders of our day. And over the centuries to say things like the Gospel of John is the most anti-Semitic book there is. They say Christians should not read the book of John because they say John and Jesus are Jew haters. And that, my friends, could not be further from the truth. A, Jesus and his disciples are Jews. And B, what's really going here on here is the same blind hatred of Jesus the religious leaders had back then still going strong today. They'd crucify Jesus today. In the book of John, he uses this phrase, the Jews, over 70 times. Sometimes Jesus uses the term for the rulers in the neutral form, sometimes in the positive form. You remember back in chapter 4, verse 22, when Jesus says to the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. That was positive, right? But by and large, we see that in this conflict that Jesus has with these religious dudes, these religious leaders, he uses the term the Jews for the leaders who were opposing his mission to save people. They're standing in the way. We've already seen that the Apostle John has clearly distinguished the Galileans in the northern part of Israel. They were Jewish in the ethnic sense, but John doesn't refer to them as the Jews. He calls them the Galileans. Even in Jerusalem, he distinguishes between the leaders and the people. Now, this is why I wanted us to make sure and get this setting before we dive further into John. Because most of the time, when it's talking about the other people, it means the common people. And the common people had responded really positively to Jesus' message of being the Messiah. Think about it. The people that had been baptized by John the baptizer and are now followers of Jesus, the Judeans, had started following him when he did all these signs and wonders in the temple. He cleansed it from the money changers, drove out the animals. The Galileans had even turned to follow him in large numbers. And even the Samaritans had begun to follow Jesus. They generally hated Jews, but they followed Jesus. Now the shift we see in John chapter 5, between that and chapter 4, is there's probably some time that's elapsed. Remember when it says, after this? That little phrase, after this, make sure you get this. The phrase doesn't mean right after this last thing John described, that being the healing of the royal official's son in Cana of Galilee. But rather it means sometime after this. You with me? Or another way to say it is a chunk of time has passed by before what 
happens in chapter 5 I'm talking about has happened. And we don't know how long. A few months, maybe. We just aren't told by the Apostle John. Now remember, this is important to understand. When you're studying the Synoptic Gospels or John, the Apostle John is not necessarily writing in the chronological number like one, two, three, four, like this happened, then this happened, then this happened. The other three Gospels do that. They all kind of stay together with that timeline. That's why we call it the Synoptic Gospels. But John is more like uh, 1 and then 3 and then 7, 12, 15, 18. He's taking certain things out of the life. He's bringing those events he wants to show us and simply leaves out the events that the other gospel has described since they've already described it. You with me on how that works? What we're saying here is that the Apostle John is interested in the theology more than the chronology. He's interested in the theology of what he's trying to tell more than the, the chronology or the time. He's pulling certain events out of the time he had lived and ministered with Jesus to show us that Jesus is the Christ. Now the other three Gospels tend to stick to that same timeline. The point is this. After Jesus' second miracle of healing the royal official's son in Galilee, we saw at the end of chapter 4 some big events had transpired since that time to this. One event is that the Jewish nation had suffered some major dangerous insurrections and that it started to boil. Like there were some guys that were Jewish nationalists. We see them just mentioned in Scripture, but we know from Scripture uh, or from history books the zealots were trying to overthrow Roman rule with a sword. So the Romans were cracking down hard on the Jewish leaders to get their people under control. We know from historians that the ancient uh, Roman commander, Junius, uh, forced Pilate, Pontius Pilate, who was actually running the occupation force to strip the ruling body of the Jews of all their power. That council, council called the Sanhedrin was forced out of their great hall that they had ruled from for hundreds of years. <clears throat> they had to begin meeting in the market area of an Ananias' house on the temple now. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders were stripped of all their powers to enforce laws and most importantly they couldn't ex execute people anymore. <clears throat> they could before this. By the way, that would be the reason that when Jesus was arrested by them, they had to go to Pontius Pilate to seek his crucifixion. They'd been stripped of the ability to execute people or enforce the law. But on a more than one occasion, they sought to kill Jesus on the spot. They were just doing it extra legally there. Certainly the Romans did insist on holding the power of capital punishment. But I think going to Pilate in Jesus' case, it was more of a political strategy because Jesus' popularity among the people, they wanted to see that the Romans were responsible for executing Jesus. Two things here. One, the point is that the Jewish leaders, who were both political and religious leaders at the same time, they were super cautious to not let anyone claim that he was the Messiah. They didn't want people to rise up and start a revolution and throw the Romans out. Now, why mention all of that stuff that I just mentioned? Well, one, I'm a history guy. I like history. What can I say? But two, this seems like the political power and men doing the bad things to try to stop Jesus. And it is. That's exactly what this is. But I don't want you to miss the deeper battle that's going on here. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul puts this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Paul tells us as believers to put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. The fight Jesus is really waging here is not these guys, but who they're working for. Do you see what I mean? Jesus is 
in this physical world, but he is fighting a spiritual battle. <laughs> and by the way, so are we. This is the thing I'm, I'm telling you. At this point, when chapter 5 opens, John the baptizer has been put to death already. We think that because when Jesus talks about him a little later on, he talks about him in past tense. So in this, from the time the, he heals the Roman, or, or the um, royal official son, and this, some serious things are happening. It's almost martial law. What we're saying is that it's no wonder the Jewish leaders are freaking out about Jesus. They know this is a dangerous person in their mind. They have to stop him at all costs. We see later in John 11 when Jesus raises the dead man Lazarus back to life in front of a, a whole lot of witnesses, the Jewish leaders decide that Jesus has to die and die now because everyone will keep following him if he starts raising people from the dead. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus did not allow their hostility to turn him one iota from following God the Father's plan that he had set before him. I mean, he knew the cross. He knew the suffering lay before him. He knew the work would kill him, and yet he walked the walk. He completed his mission all the way to the end. Here's the thing I want us to get today. Do you, do you let the possibility of hostility stop you from your mission? Because if you have a firm determination to live for Jesus and speak his words to those that don't know him, that opposition's coming. Maybe you've already experienced it. Now, I know I'm sounding a little bit scary here, but listen, when opposition comes, here's what we have to be careful of. Don't allow bitterness to cloud your mind and keep you from remembering the mission to reach the lost with the gospel. Don't allow the bitterness to cloud your mind and keep you from remembering the mission to reach the lost with the gospel. You've probably seen it already. Christians that have stopped witnessing and living for Jesus because they're bitter. It's like they say, the world is so sinful, there's just no use. Or they say something like, America used to be this great Christian country, but now what's the use? It's, gone, it's fallen so far. They've stopped engaging the world and they're just waiting for the end to come. No, no, no. There are so many Christians that hide they're in their church, but the world where they live in doesn't even know that they're believers. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is this you? Like these guys are just trying to get through life. Oh, at church they're believers. They say amen, praise God. They don't ever cuss. <laughs> but no one at work, no one at school, no one in their neighborhood knows they're believers because let's face it, then they'd have to answer a lot of questions. We can't do that, folks. We can't do it. We can't hide from the world that we're Christ followers. Here's my point. Jesus didn't lose focus and didn't become bitter. He didn't let that stuff deter him at all. Jesus is our pattern to follow. We said this. We said that this, uh, that there were first two dangers that we face that keep us from taking action. One is opposition. The other is success. So many times we think if I tell people about Jesus, well, what if it works? Then I'll really have to start living for Jesus. Like they'll be in my life, I'll have to disciple them, have to be with them because when you're helping someone grow in Christ Jesus, we call that discipling or disciple making. It spurs you into a great depth of growth yourself. And I think that scares us a little bit, doesn't it? It forces us not to just talk about living for Jesus. We have to actually put our money where our mouth is. We have to start living for Jesus. And I can't put my finger on it, but I think the barrier is that either 
asking myself, can I really do it? Like, is it possible? Doubt of my own ability, I guess. Here's the thing I want us to see here. God is not so much interested in your ability as your availability when it comes to sharing the gospel. God is not so much interested in your ability as your availability when it comes to sharing the gospel. Now what we're really saying here is a heart that is truly surrendered to the will of God saying, God, I want what you want for my life. Jerry Shockley, one of our shepherding elders, loved to have, he has a saying, he loves to say this, I love it. God can hit a perfect lick with a crooked stick. I love that. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is, this is for me, for sure, every time, uh, even a mature believer says, I, I face this, even today, I I'm going, God, you really want me to preach? Like, you realize I'm pretty messed up, God. Like, I, I, I don't get it. <laughs> you want me, God? We don't always feel equipped for the mission ahead, do we? We're working on that to help you grow, by the way. The shepherding elders, your D3 group leaders are, are going to help you do just that. The good news is that when Jesus calls us into ministry, when he calls us into the battle, he doesn't call those already equipped for the mission. No, he equips those that he's already called. That's how it works. But the last thing I'll leave you with before we end our time together is this thought. We come up with lots of excuses for not joining Jesus on his mission to seek and save the lost. But could it be that your reluctance to get into the game is because you've never been born again yourself. Because born again people share the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, the Apostle Paul challenges the members of that church to, quote, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. He says, examine yourself. Examine your life. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test, he says. And regardless of your perceived lack of ability or just plain fear that keeps you from the battle, if Jesus lives in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will have an unquenchable desire to follow him into the fight. If not, if you're content to sit in the stands and watch as others engage, you may be failing the test. If that's your story, take comfort in Jesus' words in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. God has called you to life in him. Could that uneasiness in your heart be the Father drawing you to himself? If so, don't delay. Come. You see, having faith in Jesus means following him into the mission, leaving your life behind. Oh, and remember, he says, if you lose your life for my sake, then you'll really find true life. Next week, Easter Sunday, as we celebrate the resurrection, then we'll be right back together again, right in here. I'll share with you the third miracle that the Apostle John examines in chapter 5. You're going to be amazed at that story, but next week, Easter and the resurrection. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for calling us to yourself to believe that you won't lose any that you have given your son, that he will save all of the people you have called. God, help us to be faithful in that call as believers in, in you, Jesus. If you're not a Christian, would you look up here for a second? If you're a Christian, you just pray. But if you're not a, a follower of Christ, not a Christian, look up here. Here's the short, here's the skinny on it. If you've sinned, you're at war with God. Hear me out. Think about it. 
Have you ever stolen anything in your life? Any? Have you ever hated someone in anger so much you wanted them to die? I have. Ha have you committed some kind of sin, sexual sin? You know, well, no, no, I haven't had an affair. Have you, in your heart, undressed that woman? Have you thought about the affair with that man? How about, how about this? Have you ever dishonored your parents, even once? Listen, the bar of the law is so high. Jesus says, if you've broken that bar, you are guilty of your sin. By the way, me too. Look at all Ten Commandments, broken every single one. But the good news, Jesus says, is He will come in. He says, if you believe in Him as Savior and Lord, He will take all your sin, all of it, from throughout time, past, present, future. He says, I will go, and although you're guilty, I will stand in your place and take the punishment as the guilty one. What's the punishment? Well, if you're at war with God, the punishment is death. Physical death, yes, but spiritual death, separation from God. Jesus says, I'll take that. That's what he does on the cross. He takes that sin. He nails it to the cross. And he pays for it. His blood works as a payment for our sin. You with me? Not only that is Jesus is perfect man, it's fully man, fully God, truly God, truly man. He comes to earth and he, is, he says, look, I'll live this perfect life, never sinning. And you can take my righteousness. In other words, my reward for living this perfect life on earth. So we call it the great exchange. Now, how do you get that? Well, right now, if you're understanding this, that is the Holy Spirit of God opening you up for this. Like awakening you from the dead to be able to hear that message. So simply believe. That's what we call being born again. You have been woken from spiritual death. And if you believe your sins are paid for and the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed into your account. So simply pray. If that's true, if you believe, simply pray. Say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for taking my place. And you can say this, I don't know how to live. I, I don't know how to live, God. I, I don't know how to, to not sin. Oh, well, we'll work on that. Holy Spirit is now, the third member of the Trinity is now living within you. Because you believe, he's come into you. It's literally the reason why you believe. He's woken you from the dead. And he says, you just start following. I'll help with that. We'll help you with that too. So just pray this. I want to follow you all the days of my life. Here are the keys to my life. Just give him control. Make him the boss. And end your prayer like this. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.